If you have your Bible, open it up to uh, the book of Judges. Uh, we'll be in chapter 7, actually chapters, into chapter 6 and through chapter 7. So book of Judges. Well, uh, I grew up primarily in the 1980s. And uh, so got the opportunity to live through a number of those great 1980s movies. And one of the best ones of the 1980s, if not one of the best movies of all time, uh, was a little movie called The Karate Kid. Now, some of you guys uh, have probably seen this. Maybe you've seen it on the TNT afternoon movie or something like that. Um, Karate Kid is great. It has everything that you need. It has star power, right? Daniel... uh, played by Ralph Macchio and uh, Pat Morita. It has uh, romance, it has action, it has humor, it has everything that you would want in a movie. And uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, let me just summarize the plot for you of Karate Kid. Uh, Daniel, again played by Ralph Macchio, moves to a new town, and when he gets there, he quickly runs afoul of the local karate gang headed up by uh, Johnny Lawrence. Now, every town has one of these karate gangs, right? And uh, Daniel runs afoul of it, and uh, he finds himself day after day being beaten up by a group of guys who dress like skeletons. And so uh, what Daniel does at first is he decides he's going to try to just avoid them, get away. But then he runs across Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi is an old man from Okinawa who is the janitor at their apartment complex and he creates little bonsai trees in his spare time. And uh, Miyagi, it turns out, is also a karate master. And so he begins to train Daniel. Daniel says, can you help me to defeat these guys and solve my problem? And Miyagi says, absolutely, under the condition that you do everything I say. No questions. Daniel says, you got a deal. So they begin their training, and what does he have him do? He says, well, I want you to wash and wax my car, right? Wax the car, wax the car, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. Paint the fence, he paints the fence, paint up, paint down, paints the fence, right? Finally, Daniel gets frustrated with this method of training, which seems like Miyagi's just using him for cheap labor, and he says, I'm out of here. And Miyagi says, all right, hold on, show me wax the car, right? He goes, And it turns out Daniel has been secretly learning karate moves. And he didn't even know it, right? And Miyagi shows him these are blocks and paint the fence as a block and everything he's been doing. And eventually, long story short, Daniel learns how to stand like an ostrich and he wins this big tournament against this guy that is his nemesis, right? And it's a great film. And what I love about it is you have this mentor who trains Daniel LaRusso from a weakling into this warrior, where he's able to defeat his nemesis. But in order to do it, Daniel has to trust in Miyagi. Now, I tell that story uh, not because most of us are learning karate, right? Maybe a few of us are, but most of us are not. But we are in the middle of a transformation process. Most of us uh, would say, if we were asked, that we want to go from being a spiritual weakling into a man or woman of great faith, a person who walks closely with God, A man or a woman who knows how to pray. I read the lives of great saints and how they prayed and how God answered their prayers and how they exercised faith in God. And I say, I want to be like that. I want to be a person who shares the gospel and sees my friends and my family come to know Jesus Christ. I want to be a person of humility. I want to be a person of wisdom. I want to be a person of spiritual greatness, not necessarily a person who is famous. The world is filled with famous people. We certainly don't need more. What we need are men and women of true spiritual greatness. You can live your whole life in obscurity and yet be a man or a woman who walks with God in spiritual greatness. And that's what we want. We want that kind of transformation process. But 
I know if you're like me, what I often don't want is the breaking process that comes along with that transformation. The hours of silence or of agony as I pray for things that are significant to God and significant to me, or perhaps the trials that I have to endure to refine my character, to burn off those parts of my character that are displeasing to God. I don't want the pain that comes along with that transformation process. And so I'm a lot like Daniel LaRusso. And I say, God, this isn't what I signed up for. He says, this is how you learn to be like Jesus. As we look at Judges 6 and 7 this morning, we're going to see the life of a man who had to learn this lesson that spiritual transformation only comes ultimately through submission to God, even when God's methods seem strange, even when it requires that I lay aside those things that I trust in, and I trust in God instead. Gideon, we find Gideon living in a very difficult and dark time in the nation of Israel. The book of Judges is not a book, actually, that you see a whole lot of books or sermon series centered around because there are portions of the book of Judges that are almost too horrific to talk about. It is a dark and evil time in the nation of Israel. The people are living in the land that God had promised them. It falls right on the heels of Joshua. And Joshua, who was Moses' successor, had led the people into the land. They had begun to conquer the land, uh, but then they begin to settle in the land and they immediately start to follow idols and turn against God and walk away from God. And so kind of the uh, main phrase The center phrase of the book of Judges that's repeated two or three times is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So everyone's just doing their own thing. And so there's a cycle that we see in the book of Judges. Here's the cycle. The people fall into idolatry. And so God sends a foreign nation to judge them. And in the midst of their pain, they experience remorse and they cry out to God and they say, God, save us. And so God raises up judges. Judges were like tribal leaders or warriors that would redeem them from the hands of the nations around them. And so God delivers them. But immediately after God delivers them, they fall back into idolatry. And so this cycle goes around and around and around. And that's where we find Gideon. Gideon is living in a period of time in which the people, because of their idolatry and sin, have been oppressed by the Midianites. And the Midianites were like a local band of uh, roaming gypsies, so to speak. They would ride up on their camels, ride at harvest time, and they would take all of the grain, and then they'd ride off into the distance. And the Israelites couldn't do anything. And so God finds this man, Gideon. He's basically a farmer in northern Israel. And God calls Gideon out and God says, Gideon, I want you to be the one to deliver the nation of Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And Gideon says, you've got the wrong guy. I'm I'm of the least of the tribes. I'm the least in my family. He's fearful. He's doubtful. And God says, no, Gideon, it's going to be you. And he begins this process of transforming Gideon from a spiritual weakling into a warrior, a man who will deliver God's people from the hand of the enemy. And so Gideon's going to learn a lesson as we walk through the passage that you and I ultimately have to learn. And that is to be God's agent of redemption in this world. To be a man or a woman who does God's will as he has called us. To be a man or a woman through whom God works. We ultimately are called to submit to God. To submit our desires, our fears, our doubts. To the hand of God who will shape us persistently and patiently. And transform us into who he wants us to be. So let's look at the life of Gideon for just a few minutes. 
All right, beginning in Judges chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on all the ground. The first thing we see is this. God is very patient even when we are faithless. Now many times you've perhaps heard the phrase, I'm going to throw out a fleece to determine God's will. And it's used to say, I'm going to ask God for a particular sign so that I'll know what God's will is. Well, what's interesting is as you read Judges 6, Gideon's throwing out of the fleece is actually not an act of faith. And it's not an act to determine what God's will is. Gideon already knows what God's will is. God has told Gideon in no uncertain terms, Gideon, gather the armies of Israel and go against the Midianites and deliver them. Now what Gideon is looking for is not God's will. Gideon is actually looking for a way out of God's will. I look at the test that he devises. He says, God, I'm going to put this fleece on the ground. And if you really want me to go do it, let it be wet just on the fleece and dry everywhere else. Well, Gideon wakes up the next morning and that's actually happened. So he says, all right, let's try again, God. Set the fleece out. Let it be wet everywhere else, but dry on the fleece. Wakes up again the next morning. And lo and behold, it's happened. Imagine for a minute that you wake up tomorrow morning and you say, you know, I really, I don't feel like going to work this week. I don't feel like doing my best. I don't feel like submitting to my authorities at work. I don't feel like providing for my family. God, if you really want me to go to work, I'm going to devise a little test. Now, you know, That it's God's will. You look at Colossians 3.23. It says, work heartily as under the Lord, not as under men. You know it's God's will for you to do your work diligently and do it well. But you don't feel like going. So you say, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my cat out in the backyard. All right. And if you really want me to go, you really want me to work hard. What I want you to do is I want tomorrow morning, let it snow. But just on snowball. Right. Just on the cat. Now imagine you wake up the next morning and there is the cat covered in snow. And you go, all right, uh, God, maybe you didn't understand what I was getting at here. Uh, I'm going to put the cat out again and now let it snow everywhere, but let the cat be dry. Lo and behold, it is. And what Gideon's trying to do is he's trying to find an impossible test so that God will not make him go. He's trying to manipulate God. He has not yet learned that when God gives a command, he expects obedience. We do this all the time. I think we do this all the time. We, we say, God, if you really perhaps want me to love my spouse, please make my spouse a little nicer. Right? If you want me to be kind to her, let her be kind to me. God, if you really want me to be generous with my money and give to the church and give to those who are sharing the gospel, give me lots of it so that I'll do that. God, if you want me to be faithful to my uh, spouse in my mind and in my body, Take away these desires and temptations and struggles that I'm feeling. God, take them away. And so we try to manipulate God out of doing God's will. 
So that later we can say, well, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, or you didn't do this, so I don't have to obey. That's what Gideon is trying to do. Now, what's interesting is God actually puts up with this. He makes the fleece wet, then the next day he makes everything else wet. Why does he do it? Well, God has bigger fish to fry, so to speak. He wants Gideon to deliver his people from the Midianites. And so he says, Gideon, uh, for the sake of delivering my people, I'm going to be patient with this foolishness. And he does what Gideon asked. And Gideon goes, oh, I guess you really meant it. He's patient when we're faithless. If you go to a football game in the fall, you'll see a number of new students, freshmen who are there and they don't yet understand or know all of the yells that they're supposed to do. And as you watch, you'll see sometimes they mess up the yells. Maybe instead of gig them, they say get them or something like that. And uh, as you look around, you'll see upperclassmen around them. And uh, interestingly, the upperclassmen don't pick them up and throw them off third deck. Why? They're patient with them. Why? Because our team needs people to yell. Right? We need people to cheer. And so we say, we're going to put up with this because we have bigger fish to fry. We need noise. God says, Gideon, yeah, I'm going to put up with this. Why? Because God has a bigger plan. I want you to deliver my people. God is unbelievably patient. He knows that when you go to serve him, your motives are not perfectly pure. You say, you know, I don't want to leave that Bible study because... My motives aren't pure. Maybe I'm doing it a little bit because I really just want to be liked or thought of as wise. Maybe I shouldn't do it at all. And yet God knows your motives are not pure and he's patient in the process of transformation. And he says, even in the midst of that process of transformation, go ahead and serve me. Go ahead and obey. If you wait until your motives are pure, you're going to wait till you're dead. God's unbelievably patient with Gideon. He's unbelievably patient with us as he begins to transform us. Nonetheless, we see God is also persistent. He's also persistent when we need transformation. Begin in chapter seven, starting in verse one. See, then Jerubael, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and I will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. All right, this is an unbelievable passage as you look at it. It's very surprising at the beginning. Gideon is camped there with about 32,000 people. Do you know how many Midian has? You find out later on in this story, Midian has 135,000 people. It's about a four to one ratio. 
And Gideon, God says to Gideon, Gideon, there's too many people with you. Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, I, I don't think so. There's one of us for every four of them. It seems like we've got too few. He says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send all of the ones who are afraid, let them go. This is actually a reminder of Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse eight. In the law, God had said, when you go out to battle, let the ones who are afraid go home. Don't make men who are fearful go to battle with you. And so God says, Gideon, do that. Let them go home. And what's crazy is they've got 32,000 people there and 22,000 of them go home. Gideon loses two thirds of his army like that because they're afraid. And they're afraid because there's already too few of them. And then God says, Gideon, uh, the 10,000 are still, that's, that's too many. Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm beginning to think this is getting ridiculous. It's now one to 13, one to 14. And you're going to send more of the people home. God says, Gideon, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the stream. And God devises a a test to separate the people out. Those who uh, brought the water to their mouths were separated from those who got down on their hands and knees and licked from the water like a dog. He says, Gideon, I want you basically to take the smaller number. Those who get down on their hands and knees, they're disqualified. The ones who go like this, God says, keep them. Uh, Why? There's not given any reason. Some people have speculated maybe the ones who are doing this are more alert, they're more ready. I really think this is frankly an arbitrary test. And the point is not the strength of the men. The point is God is saying to Gideon, Gideon, you will take the men I tell you to take. And I tell you to take the 300, not the 10,000. So now here Gideon is, with 300 men against 132,000 people. That's about a one to 450 ratio. Imagine if everybody in this room this morning were to decide to attack me at one time. I don't like those odds. And there's not even 450 of us in here. So similar odds to what Gideon is facing. The point is, he says, Gideon, you need to remove the crutches before I'm gonna use you. You need to trust in me and not in the army. Some of us have small children and perhaps we're in the process of kind of trying to teach them how to swim and be comfortable in the water. And one of the things you might do early on is you might let them wear these little floaties on their arms, right? The little floaties keep them up, give them confidence early on. But eventually, if you want them to learn how to swim, you got to take those off. We don't see Michael Phelps on the gold medal stand with floaties, right? Saying, well, I really think this helped me go faster. Gave me confidence, No, eventually he has to take them off if he's really going to move. God says, Gideon, if you're really going to trust in me, if you're really going to understand that I'm the one that wins the battle, I've got to take off the floaties. I've got to remove the crutches. God wants Gideon to be free of the fear and the dependence that he has on his army. Gary Inrig, the author, puts it this way. God is not interested in simply giving his people victory. He is concerned with teaching us trust. In fact, if our victories make us self-reliant, they are ultimately more disastrous than defeat. God doesn't want us to win in our strength. And so he may call us to stop depending on those things we depend on. You say, God, I can't live without this job that I really want. God, I can't live without a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse. How can I live as a single person and still trust you? How can I live with less money than I think I need and still trust you? How can I live with poor health? 
and still trust you? What if my kids walk away from God? How can I trust you? What if my family falls apart despite my best efforts to keep it together? There are times God says, "I, I want to pull away the crutches so that you get down on your knees and you trust me. So that as you pray, so that as you share the gospel, so that as you interact in this world to reflect Jesus Christ, your trust is not in your skill, in your eloquence, in your wisdom, in your ability, but your trust is in God. That's what God does to Gideon. Now, what I love is after stripping away all of his support, God gives Gideon a last reassurance. Look at verse nine. He says, now the same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, and I think God knows that he is, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened so that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. God persistently first removes Gideon's crutches and then he gives Gideon one last opportunity to remind him who's in charge. Now think about the scene. God says, Gideon, I know you're afraid. You go down to the camp of the Midianites and just just hide out. See what you can hear. So Gideon goes down and he hides out and he happens to walk in just as these two soldiers in the Midianite camp are talking. And one of them says to the other, hey, I had a funny dream last night. A loaf of barley bread, which that's like a, a, barley bread was the cheapest of the breads. It's like a big, cheap donut. He says, this big, cheap donut's rolling down a hill and it hits the camp of Midian and it flattens it. Now, if someone tells you a dream like that, what's your normal response? Interesting, right? It's kind of a strange dream. Don't know what that means. Oh, well, let's do our job, right? But here's what happens. The two guys are standing there. The other one says, oh, I know exactly what that is. That's Gideon. How does he know Gideon's name? How does he know who Gideon is? And then he says, Gideon's going to come and he's going to wipe us out. Does that seem bizarre to you? The whole scene is is very strange. Why does this happen? How does this guy know Gideon's name? Why is he willing to admit Gideon's going to wipe out? How does Gideon just happen to get there at just the right time? Who gave this guy the dream? Well, it's all clearly designed by God. For Gideon's benefit. This whole incident, God gives the man the dream. God places it on his mouth right at that time that Gideon gets there to say, Gideon, guess who's in charge? It's not you. It's not the Midianites. It's me. If you'll trust me, you'll walk into battle with me. I will win. But you've got to trust me. And God is unbelievably patient and he gives Gideon opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to trust him just like he does with us. And yet he's persistent. I read an article uh, earlier this year about these two artists in Virginia 
They had a science background and they went into the business of glass blowing and they decided they wanted to develop a new technique where they could actually weave uh, strands of glass together and create a a nesting type of effect. I'll show you a picture of what they make. This is uh, actually all glass. It's a bird's nest. They call these nest babies and you can see the little eggs in there. And they've taken these strips of glass and they've woven them intricately together to create this nest. Now what's interesting about this is it said that these guys spent five years figuring out how to do this. Many times they would apparently get right to the part where they were actually going to harden the glass and heat it up. And as they heated it, it would break into pieces and fall apart. It happened over and over and over and over and over again. Took them five years. Now, I have to confess, I don't have that kind of patience. About the second time it broke, I would say, I'm done. Glass is too tough. But in their persistence, they created something of beauty. Something unbelievable. As I read the story of Gideon, that's what I see. I see a God taking a man who's weak, fearful, doubtful. And he says, Gideon, I want you to be my agent of redemption. So I'm going to transform you into the man I want you to be. That's the kind of God we serve. He knows that you're weak. He knows that I'm weak. He knows our doubts. He knows our sins. He knows our fears. And he calls us to submit to the process of transformation. That process that comes through reading his word and submitting to it. Through praying and submitting to the voice of the spirit in our lives. Through being in community and hearing men and women who can challenge us to walk more like Jesus Christ. And God says, I want you to submit to this process, even though it's hard and even though it's painful. And yes, trials will come in your life, but God will persistently transform us into the men and women he wants us to be, to do his will. If we will follow. So God is unbelievably persistent when we need transformation. And the final thing that we see then is that when we're obedient, God is powerful. Look at verses 16 to 24. It says Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying out as they fled. When they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerera, as far as the edge of Abel Meholah by Tabath. So I guess that's a long way. I don't know where those places are, but long way. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah in the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. All right, Gideon's plan at first sounds a little weird. He says, we're going to stand around and we're just going to make a whole lot of noise. We're going to smash our jars. We're going to raise our torches. We're going to scream as loud as we can. And it sounds strange, but as you think about it, it's not a bad plan. One commentator said, this is psychological warfare at its best. Gideon's strategy is we don't have a lot of people, but we can make a lot of noise. And maybe we can scare them. 
if you have ever been in the dark, unable to see, and all of a sudden there's a great deal of noise or even a little bit of noise or somebody comes up behind you, you know it can be terrifying. I can distinctly remember uh, when I was young, my dad actually used to leave our house very early in the morning to go to work. He would leave while it was still dark. One morning I woke up and I heard him leaving the house and I wanted to go and say uh, goodbye to him and maybe give him a hug or something like that. So I walked out into the living room and I walked up behind him and I said, goodbye, dad, I love you. And my dad turned around and he goes, ha, like this, right? Now, my dad doesn't know karate. He's never, uh, he's never learned it. And I don't know what he was going to do to me in those dark hours of the morning. But just the sound in the dark scared him enough that he was fearful. And that's what Gideon's going for. So at the right moment, all together, they yell, they smash their pitchers, they raise their torches and they scream. And what happens is the army of the Midianites uh, is absolutely terrified. Clearly, there's a divine terror that is placed upon this army as well. Because there are 135,000 of them. And I think in the next chapter, it says that they they killed 120,000 one another. They almost wipe out their army with friendly fire, so to speak. They're so terrified. And what Gideon sees is that God moves amazingly and powerfully when when he chooses to be obedient. God says, Gideon, I'm going to take away your army and still win. Gideon, I'm going to transform you into a person who will worship me. After the dream, back at the end of uh, verse 15, Gideon, here's the account of the dream and its interpretation. He bowed in worship. Interestingly, that's the only time in the book of Judges that you see a person bowing before God in worship. You see people bowing before idols in worship. You see people uh, bowing for other reasons. It's the only time in the book of Gideon you see a person bow before God in true worship. God says, Gideon, I'm going to transform you into a person who will worship me so that I can be powerful, not you. So that I can be exalted, not you. And God says, Gideon, I want you to be the person I want you to be so that I can show my power through you. And that's what God does. God will strip away our dependence upon ourselves and say, "Uh, trust me. You want to do things for my kingdom. You want to learn to be a man or a woman of prayer, a man or a woman of evangelism, a man or a woman of faith, of wisdom. Only way to do that is by trusting in me. Not in your skills, not in your abilities, not in your finances, not in your job, not in your spouse, not in your kids. Trust in me. We did a song uh, just a few minutes ago. Colin sang for us uh, called A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Uh, That's a modern arrangement of an old hymn. Some of you perhaps recognize the words written by George Matheson back in the 19th century. Uh, George Matheson is an interesting guy. Matheson studied at a young age for the ministry. And he was brilliant, a brilliant student. And yet in, in his late teens, Matheson got a degenerative disorder and he went blind. And of course, uh, back in his day and age, there, wasn't a, a lot, there weren't a lot of ways to diagnose what was wrong and there certainly weren't ways to correct it. And so he slowly went blind. He lost his ability to read from a page. He did not immediately go into the ministry and he moved back home. One of his sisters took care of him and, and the dreams that he had for his life, in a sense, were shattered. He, uh, the story goes that he was actually engaged at the time and when he went blind, his fiance broke off the engagement saying, I simply can't do this. I can't move through my life with a man who's blind. And so he lived his life to a certain degree in pain and, and in frustration, broken dreams. And several years later, 
the sister that was taking care of him, the last sister that he had who was still single, got married. And this is when he wrote this song on the eve of her wedding. He said, I wrote this song out of this deep anguish in my soul because of the heartache that I was feeling. Because everything that I had dreamed of had been stripped away. Let me show you the words to the first couple of verses again. A love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. It's a song of submission. Matheson says, God, I'll give you this life. I don't know what it's worth. I don't seem to have much left. Take it for what it's worth. And do something with it. Matheson went on. He became a pastor at a church. He, he pastored a large church in England. And he wrote this song that we still sing today. A song that reminds us that when we give our lives to God, he can take it as weak as it is, as fearful as we are, as doubtful as we are, and he can transform it if we trust in him. It may be that there are some of you in here this morning that you've never trusted Jesus Christ for the very first time. And the message for you, that the one message for you from this passage this morning, from this text, is that there is only one way to live a life that is pleasing to God. There is only one way to have a life that counts for eternity, to have a life where you will live for eternity, and that is by believing in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Because all of us are separated from God because of our sin. None of us is worthy to talk to God, to pursue God, to know God. And yet Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sins so that we can have eternal life, so that we can know God. So the message for you this morning would be exercise faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life so that you can know him. Now, many of you in here, you know Jesus Christ. You've exercised faith in him. And yet, uh, if you're like me, you're struggling with this concept of submission, perhaps because there's something in your life that you're not willing to let go of. There's something in your life that you say, I trust this. And if God takes this away, whether it's my spouse, my kids, my job, my money, whatever it may be, you say, I trust in this. And if God were to take this away, I can't serve him. Maybe you're in a place in your life where God is taking that away. Maybe that you're here and you're, you're under a great deal of pain because God is seemingly stripping away things that are important to you or dreams that you had for yourself, for your family. So the message for us this morning would be submit and trust God that his plan for transforming us is greater than ours. And that as we trust him, he can make us the men and women that he desires us to be. Greater than we could be if we don't trust him. Greater than we could be in our own strength. The question from this text for us would be, are you and I willing to submit to God to be transformed from weakling to warrior, whatever the cost may be, whatever the trials may be, so that God can use us for greatness in his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word and for the life of Gideon. Father, how you transformed him into a man of greatness. We are are in awe, Lord. And we know that 
you desire us to have that level of trust, to, to fall on our hands and knees in true worship and submission to you. Not so that we can be famous, not so that we can be well-known or well-liked, but so that you can use us, whatever that may be, even if that is in a small way or if it is in a large way. We pray that you would transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we just pray, give us the strength to submit our will to yours. And we thank you for this morning. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.